Well, thank you for coming out tonight. In this uh, class, we'll be studying the book of 1 Timothy. So if you want to turn to that. We'll just go over a little bit of background. I don't want to belabor that. And then we're going to cover verses 1 to 11 tonight. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your church, for the joy we have uh, in knowing one another and growing together, uh, just to see one another's faces and be reminded of the relationship we have, of what you are doing in each one and what you are doing with us together. Lord, we are, we are grateful for your faithfulness, for your presence in our midst. We ask that each class that's being taught for Christianity Explored, that uh, those that come would be helped, that your word would strike at their hearts, that you would cause it to resonate, they would know your word is true. By it, they would know that you are real, that you are engaged and involved, that the gospel would be clear. We ask that each child who's a part of uh, kids' ministry, of what's taking place with teens, that you would work in their hearts to root them in the gospel and the word of God, that they would have confidence in it. Uh, we ask for this study on First Timothy for this time tonight. Lord, we need you that we can set aside busyness of mind, that your word would settle in, that we would be impacted in meaningful ways, to see you clearly, to live for you in faithful ways, that you would bring fruitfulness to us. We ask for all these things, uh, knowing that you are good uh, beyond our expectations. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the recipient of this epistle, not surprisingly, is someone named Timothy. Uh, we know from the book of Acts that his mother was a Jewish believer. Uh, his father was Greek, probably unbelieving. All we're told about him is that he was a Greek. And uh, we have uh, the the Christian faith of Timothy's mother and grandmother mentioned, but nothing about his father. So we can assume he was an unbeliever. Timothy's family uh, were likely converted during Paul's first missionary journey. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And then when Paul later on returns to those same cities that he had gone to and established churches in during his first journey, he comes back and he finds this young man, Timothy, who was well spoken of. The, the people in the church brought him to Paul's attention. So he must have been a faithful young man uh, that people were proud of. And uh, Paul must have been impressed with him because he decides to take Timothy along with him. I would think that had to be intimidating, exciting, but uh, Paul was a, a force of nature. And I don't think Paul suffered fools in terms of if you're with him, you better be faithful. And we see some of that in Paul being unwilling to take Mark with him on this second journey because Mark had abandon the first missionary journey. Uh, Timothy, he not only begins to travel with Paul and becomes a protege of Paul, he is eventually ordained to ministry and, and travels with Paul extensively over many years. Uh, Paul will refer to Timothy as uh, his spiritual father, as a spiritual father to him, and to Timothy as his son. 
So there is a very meaningful relationship there. Um, and Timothy is well trusted by Paul because he is sent by Paul uh, to engage with churches in Thessalonica, Corinth, Philippi, and here in this letter he's in Ephesus. So for, for Paul to entrust uh, his ministry to Timothy and to call on Timothy to stay and work with churches where there are difficulties, where uh, they need input, shows his trust. Um, I was trying to remember, I, uh, in something I read uh, in the last few weeks, uh, a writer was commenting on uh, what he called a basic synopsis of all of Paul's epistles. He said, basically, it's Paul saying, hi, I'm Paul. I'm thankful for you. I pray for you. Uh, pay attention to the Word of God. Stop acting foolishly. And Timothy says hello. He says, that, that's basically what we have in Paul's letters. <laughs> Enough truth in that. Uh, this particular letter uh, to Timothy now, who is serving over the churches in the city of Ephesus, a prominent city, uh, a city where uh, Paul established the church, spent two years there where there was dramatic movement of the Spirit of God. Timothy has been here for a somewhat unknown period of time, but it would appear that uh, he may be a bit worn out and frustrated by the experience and that possibly he's thinking of leaving uh, because we see in verse 3, Paul will specifically encourage him, remain, stay there. Uh, there are a number of problems within the church. Uh, there was false teaching. Uh, we're going to see that come up at, at different times. There was ungracious interaction in the church, which we also might call fighting, arguing. <laughs> uh, and there were leadership issues. Uh, we often think of Timothy, particular as pastors, it's known as a pastoral epistle. There's a lot of information here about pastoral ministry and of church leadership, and we can be just thinking, well, Paul is sharing this with Timothy because Timothy is a young leader and he wants him to understand uh, these truths. But it's not just that Timothy would have information. It's because Timothy was facing real leadership problems. This is not just information given to Timothy in a vacuum. It was information that was needed because it wasn't understood. The problems are not new. They've drug on. They will continue to drag on. Uh, in verse 20, we see that some of the instigators are, were put under church discipline by Paul. And then when we get to 2 Timothy, we find that they're still having problems with those same men. And so... The leadership problems, the, the teaching of what is not biblical, uh, the added, their bad attitudes, creating turmoil in the church. It had been happening serious enough, long enough, that Paul had to intercede, as he says, to turn him over to Satan. It was referring to a, a church discipline. And the fact that it will continue in his next epistle uh, we get a sense how Timothy could be wearied, frustrated. Uh, this pastoral epistle is given for the care and the health of the local church. Uh, and so we have here a crucial teaching for church leaders. That's why it is used so widely uh, to guide pastoral ministry understanding the call of elders, how they are to conduct themselves, 
How do we prepare elders? We, we go to Timothy quite a bit for that. Uh, and that's not only important just for the obvious reasons of, of needing to know, well, how do we equip elders? What should be their character? How do we judge them? Uh, but over, over the years, uh, no area in the church at large, meaning the church throughout the United States, the church in other parts of the world, no area has become more concerning to me than that of leadership in the church. Um, maybe part of it's just age and what concerns you changes over time. Uh, but what I see so widely as poor understanding of biblical leadership, of unhealthy views of what are the examples and models of leadership that are being used? And unfortunately, through much of the church, the models aren't even biblical ones, but are corporate. We have the misuse of leadership roles that we read far too often and can experience far too often. And sometimes when I think of... Um, why would leadership be such a, a problem in so many churches and in many parts of the world? Just fundamental understanding of what is biblical leadership? Why does there seem to be a disconnect when we would think that's foundational? I think a significant part of that, beyond the fact of just human nature and pride always getting the way. If we think, where does Satan want to give great attention? If he can, if he can work at the leadership of churches so that gets skewed, uh, then he's created and sown the seeds of all sorts of problems and weaknesses to enter the church. So I, this is an area that, that Satan wants to press into. I think similar, we can think of that for all of us. Why, is, why do we struggle with prayer so much? We need prayer. God can provide all we need. He invites us to pray, and yet we struggle so much to pray. Why would that be? Because it is so important, and so Satan sets himself against our being prayerful people. If he can keep us from being prayerful people, he's sown the seeds for our weakness, for all sorts of problems. And so what, what we have throughout this book uh, is an important for church leaders uh, in how they fulfill their roles, but that means then also in churches for what they expect of leaders and how we build up leaders. What are we looking for? Uh, so it's what church leaders need to know and it's what churches need to know as we all work together in these, these matters. And what's in this letter is crucial for church members uh, as we look at problems of, of unclear doctrine of behavior and something we've seen in the church throughout America over the last few years, coming through COVID and political issues and racial issues, uh, I couldn't tell you the number of times where you hear of in conversations or read of churches being deeply defined divided of many pastors leaving ministry or being tempted to leave ministry, of uh, just defeat and discouragement. There's been, from a pastoral standpoint, uh, 
there's been a huge amount of writing and conversation on the beating that church leaders and churches took through the last few years, uh, which I think revealed that to a wide extent, many Christians think they understand clearly what it means to be Christians and to be mature and all of that, that pressure revealed maybe not as mature as we think. Maybe our understanding isn't as strong. Maybe we're not as rooted as we think for churches to have that much tearing. Uh, grateful that at, in our church we did not have that. With all of the pressures of the last few years, God, God carried us well. Uh, I feel we, we came out of those the COVID years, whatever we want to call them, uh, stronger than ever with a, uh, uh, just a sense of anticipation of what is God doing. Um, grateful uh, for that. But what we see of turmoil in churches reminds us of the need to always be on guard to protect unity, to protect how do we think about each other, how do we interact with each other, what's important. Um, so these are, these are threads running through Timothy that are all immensely important. That we can't allow ourselves to be tempted just to think of, you know, Ideas and truths that are nice and, yeah, someone needs to hear that. I know someone who needs to hear that. Uh, but really examining ourselves, you know, where are, even if the traces are very fine, and the seeds seem small, uh, that we're looking at our own hearts. How do we engage with one another in this which is the most important of all works in the world. What takes place in the church with God's people, with his gospel. Nothing is more important, more precious, more serious. So may we be reflective, owning, benefiting by this. The way Paul introduces himself Verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And we can read that and think, well, that's, you know, that's a very typical introduction that, that Paul would give in his letters, but then realize uh, this is a letter to a person a co-worker, his protege, who he, here he calls his, his son in the faith. So it, it's not the introduction that we would typically give to a person we know so closely and well. So, so we see, even from Paul's terminology and tone, though he is writing to Timothy, he is also writing to the church. This was a letter that Timothy needed as a leader, but it was, it was a letter that was going to the church. All the church would read and hear it and be under this letter. It's not just to Timothy, it's to the church through Timothy. And, and Paul is both giving his authority of why we should heed what he has to say, because he is an apostle by the command of the Lord himself. And so, what he has to say to the church needs to be received by the church. And he's also letting the church know his heart for Timothy, who is struggling with the church. Uh, Timothy is, is someone dearly loved. He is precious to me. Uh, the church needed to hear that. Timothy, I'm sure, needed to hear that and know that as well. Timothy, my true child. We see his heart, his, his authority. 
So our section, verses 1 to 11, uh, we're going to read over it and we're going to see there are two related themes that are, uh, that he addresses very strongly. He, he jumps into them right away. And, and these themes, though he'll deal with a lot of specific issues through the letter, the, these themes run through, through the entirety of it. And that is, he addresses bad theology and bad behavior. We're going to deal with it in these verses, and it will be repeated throughout. So let's read the whole section. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, of Christ Jesus, our hope. Another reason why it's so worth listening and being attentive to what is here. This is the only hope we have is what we receive in Christ. To Timothy, my true child, in the faith, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good, meaning the law of God, if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So first, Paul addresses bad theology, verses 3 to 7. And he gives two categories here. We have them in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, it's different doctrine or divergent doctrine. Those who are teaching as the truths of God that which is not in the word of God, that which was not given by God. They're, they're teaching something going in a different direction. And the other in the next verse is speculative teaching. And those are the two categories he gives for bad theology. Now, when we, we think of the importance of doctrine, um, and even the words theology, uh, in the world, uh, those are not words that are highly prized. Doctrine of theology is just viewed as something that is for a very sm- of interest to a very small group of people. And when it comes to actual life, not much importance the doctrine and theology, and we're not surprised that people who really don't care about the Word of God would think that, and those who do not prize the person of God, we're not surprised that they would think that. Uh, What is concerning is when in the church that the words doctrine and theology can be minimized, as though 
Uh, yeah, good, but how important is it? The sense that they're, it's more of, for, of academics, a little bit esoteric. You, know, you, you need to learn it in theology, and obviously pastors need to know doctrine and theology, but it can be minimized as far as ourselves, knowing theology and knowing doctrine, uh, which is somewhat nonsensical. Theology means the study of God. Every person in the world has some theology. We all have some view of God. That's our theology. Our understanding of God, that, that's rather important. How do we understand God? What ology is more important than theo, Godology? The knowledge of God. Nothing comes close. And indeed, any other pursuit of knowledge actually becomes distorted and misunderstood and misused if we don't have a good theology. And so theology is actually something wonderful and precious and worth attention. And doctrines, which are just the categories of the theology, the, the specific areas in which we are declaring, this is true of God. The doctrines of who is Jesus Christ and what is the gospel which saves us? Who is the Holy Spirit and how does Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how are they interactive that they are one God and three persons? And what is the church? All of those doctrines are of immense importance and the most practical truths that exist. Because these are the eternal truths. The truths that affect where our eternity is, what our quality of life is, how well do we know God. These are the truths that determine if you had a blow up with your spouse earlier today, what do you do when you go home? That's somewhat practical. And that's based on, well, what do you believe about God? What do you understand of the doctrines of God, of who we are and how we interact and how do we relate with one another? That's, doctrines form all of that. Biblical truths shape and are meant to shape everything in life. So do leaders teach in a way that represents the intention of Scripture? If what we teach in a particular passage doesn't represent the intention of that passage, uh, then we're teaching something different. Because a passage means what it was intended to mean. If we're giving it a meaning that it wasn't intended to mean, that's different. It's something else. So the, the Bible's not something that we, we open, and then this world of self-interpretation is able to take place. What we feel it means, what we would like it to mean, what we think it means, what we guess it means. It actually means what God intended it to mean. Every time you open your mouth and speak, you intend something. Your words represent the intentions. You're trying to communicate something. Uh, God, more than any other person, intends something when he speaks. What did he intend in each of these statements he makes. That's what good biblical understanding is based on. From that original intention, then we can apply it in many ways. And so that's where the focus of, of your pastors and in, in all of our teaching and preaching, it, it always starts, whoever's preaching, whatever text they're preaching, we're, we're all always beginning at the same place. Why did God put that here? 
what was the intention God had for these statements. Once we know that intention, now, now we have a truth we can begin working with and we can begin applying. That's part of why our Sunday preaching tends to work through books. We're wanting to be systematic uh, with Scripture. Uh, it means that when we teach a passage, we trust it. Some passages are more fun to preach than others. There are some passages that contain a statement that people love to hear, that they like to put on plaques and coffee mugs, because it is immediately and obviously encouraging. And those are are passages more fun to preach. There are some passages that you'll never see on a plaque or a mug. Uh, there are some passages when you're reading it as a preacher or teacher and thinking, you're going, shouldn't it be someone else's turn this week? Or some passages just, it's not that they're, some speak some hard truths. Others just seem a little drier, not as encouraging. Sometimes it can even seem a little confusing. You're trying to work through it. And the encouragement, whether we're teaching it or we're reading it, it's to trust the text. And what I mean by that is, this is good. These words are good. Uh, these words specifically were chosen by God to appear and be given. And so the always trusting the worthiness. And that's the encouragement when you preach and think, well, I'm not sure how good that sermon was. Was the word of God made clear? Then it was a good message. Because the word itself is powerful, wonderful, worth hearing. And so if you can just be clear with what it said, then the most important thing has happened. And that's true for the hearing it and reading it as we engage and, and are working through the impact of knowing Scripture. And then to be honest with it, to be honest with what it says and not try to buffer truths that are not popular, and that's, again, teaching and listening, honest with ourselves. It doesn't say it. If it says it, then the weight of it needs to be received and thought about and taken seriously. But if we're not convicted about those things, then we come to passages and we want to kind of, the line starts getting a little squiggly. I'm not sure I want to say that. Or I'd prefer this is what I think about here and we can jump to just our thoughts and opinions. Let's bring a little our cultural indignation or our political preferences. We'll throw that in. Compromise it. Make it less than what it's meant to be. And so the, the teaching of Scripture not being divergent and with congregations and placing faith in what then the Bible tells us. And if, if we can see that what is being taught, yeah, that's, that's what's there and that's what it says. False teachers have this in common with true teachers. They're opening their Bibles and using words in the Bible. So it's not just that you use and quote Scripture, it's what are you doing with it and what it says. And so as a congregation, being convicted of each past has an intention, and we can see that what is being preached and taught really does fit 
what is said and the flow of it. And when we're expecting that and looking for that and holding teachers accountable to that, we are serving them, we're serving ourselves, and then we're required then, then, well, I guess I have to act on that because God did say that and to put our faith in it. Let's live by what it says. Entrust ourselves to it. And so that means if there's so much concern on the Bible being taught clearly, straightly, then there is the equal expectation by God that we're hearing it straightly, anticipating doing something with it. If it's important to be clear and true with it, it's important to take it in, to rejoice in it, to apply it. There's no area in all of life where falsehood has greater consequences than what we do with God's word. The details matter. If you're scheduled for brain surgery, you're hoping that surgeon is convinced that the details matter. Is he careful with the details? Did he wash his hands? You know, there's all kinds of things we want them to be careful with. The other is not only divergent doctrine, it is speculative teaching. Verse 4, devoting themselves to myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculations. Uh, That's digging into what the Bible hasn't really made clear. What the Bible hasn't said, but what we think maybe is there. It's, we're taking a truth that, something that's in the Bible, but dealing with it beyond its proportion. So it, it begins to dominate other doctrines and get in the way of them because it's given uh, an emphasis that's not there. And an obvious area in all of this is you know, eschatology, end-time doctrines, all the different ideas and opinions of what this means, and we can get into that in ways that are just guessing and speculation. There's a whole lot of speculation. There are some churches and ministries that are built entirely upon that speculation. Uh, The emphasis on spiritual warfare. Um, Or for some of the serious scholars, what we think about lapsarianism which means the, the order of God's decrees. And there are books and camps and these long involved debates based upon what order God's providence is based upon. And a bunch of men debating what's in the mind of God that hasn't been explicitly declared. Kind of a foolish thing. And yet, a lot of actually very bright theologians and even godly men have been caught up into having very strong opinions about which, which part of this we come out on. And in the end, you are speculating. Will my pet be in heaven? Or blog positions where you're writing a few times a week and you got to come up with another opinion about something. And so you're making the rings of power and what took place in last week's episode become something of spiritual importance. And the integrity of our faith in God is dependent on what you think of the role of Gladriel. And what kind of woman is she? 
a womanly woman or a manly woman or and you're oh. uh, all, these types of things tend to be pride driven it's the desire to be an expert in something uh, the desire to have special knowledge other people don't have the knowledge we have about this area. For some, it's to gain. You want to make your own disciples, disciples of you and your teaching of an area, more than just disciples of Christ who know and love him. Or to be just a superior church. Our church knows this. Other churches really don't know this like we do. But all sorts of motivations that all... All of them have that root of pride in it. He says it's fruitless. Verse 6, it's, it's vain discussion. Or to be more accurate, it produces fleshly fruit versus spiritual fruit. In Galatians 5, the fruit of the flesh, the fruit of the spirit, these... Well, Pride-driven speculation. What does it produce? Um, arguing, fighting, separation about minor issues, uh, pulling aside in what we believe versus when the other side are people who believe in the gospel fully and are committed to it and are seeking to be disciples of Christ and. We're making divisions based upon some very small matters or just divisions within each other. That's fleshly fruit versus spiritual fruit, which, let's see, patience, love, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. So does, does our teaching, what is it producing in those who are grabbing a hold of it? Is it creating a people of turmoil and infighting, or is it creating uh, people who are loving each other more and being increasingly gracious with each other rather than ingracious? And my experience has been that when I first wrote this sentence, it said often, but I stuck in very often, very Often, those particular who are teachers and are immersed in a lot of speculative teaching and that which kind of infighting teaching, it ends up there is flagrant sin in their lives very often. Part of it is they, they want their expertise almost to, you know, let's distract so I'm living in sinful ways, but I'm coming across as someone who really knows the things of God. And you're going to be impressed. And another reason is it's fleshly perspective, so it's going to produce fleshly fruit. And the guards are down and all sorts of sin. You know, temptation is always pressing against us. And if we're not handling Scripture well, uh, we're, we're even less protected so it's not even a matter of disagreeing or you know, arguments in the church. It, it, it leads to all sorts of serious sins and troubles. Now, what does Paul say? Now, it's interesting here. Uh, in contrast, he doesn't say, though he, he still intends this, you know, so get your theology correct. Uh, he says that, but it, the way in which he says that, uh, we see in verse 5, uh, the aim of our charge, well, what is his charge? His charge against speculative teaching and divergent teaching. Our aim is love. And when we're serious about theology and doctrine, sometimes we, we can get a little squeamish there because, well, you know, we, we realize how much love is kind of abused. You know, it's a way to 
kind of push aside emphasis on theology. Well, we should just love each other and not worry about all those theological issues. And uh, that can be used in dealing with essential doctrines. And so we think, well, Paul, I wish he didn't say it that way, but he was inspired by God to say it the way he did. The aim of our charge is love. When he says the aim, meaning the intention of why I'm bringing up my intention in bringing this correction and having you think about your your theology and your doctrine, the aim of this is love. And love, according to the biblical use of it, is not just mere kindness. And so, love, which means be nice to everyone and don't disturb anyone. That's not the definition of love. Kindness is an aspect of love, and we're to be kind, but love is looking for the eternal best for people. What is really best for them? And our pursuit of that is sacrificial and committed. And what is best is a gospel understanding and gospel living and the knowing of God and loving of God and loving the things of God. Love is the summation of the law, Paul will say elsewhere. What is the greatest of all commandments? Love God with all that is in you and love your neighbor as yourself. It is the heart of the gospel. God demonstrates his love for us, and while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love is what glorifies God when it's present in us. When we love God with all that is in us, we are people who are exalting. We're we're lifting up God. We're, we're putting him before everything else. Our commitment is to him. And verse 5 goes on to say that love is what flows out of, our aim is love because love is what comes out of a pure heart. Love is what comes out of right thinking, or as he says, a good conscience thinking rightly about ourselves. It is what comes out of biblical faith, a sincere faith. Love is what's produced from the right thinking and right feeling. And so part of what Paul's doing here is helping us recognize that this great important area of good theology and doctrine, good correct teaching, understanding the Bible well, not getting caught up in that which is false. But he doesn't let us agree and say amen to that in a way that is academic. That's right. That's why we cross all our T's and dot all our I's. That's why we know all the theological words and can speak of them at length. Uh, He wants us to know that understanding. If you really have right doctrinal teaching, you will have the heart of the one you're studying. You will have the heart of Christ, the heart of God you will have love. And so he is, he is making sure we don't separate and put on different shelves the importance of doctrine, teaching, theology, love, action, behavior. They're not separate shelves. Our character is to be like Christ. That's what theology should produce. Our understanding of God should produce Christ-likeness. 
And it should be the impact we're seeking to make on people. Our influence. Christ like this. So he addresses bad theology and then segues and really weaves it in with the area of bad behavior. Verses 8 to 11. Now we know that the law is good if it's used lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners, unholy, profane, those who strike fathers and mothers, murderers, sexual immorality, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to good, to sound doctrine. He addresses a number of sins. And uh, Paul uses lists quite a bit. Paul writes in lists. The fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, different sins. And it's important to realize when Paul, any list that Paul gives is never exhaustive. So when he gives the fruit of the Spirit, it doesn't mean there's, there's, that's every single behavior. Humility is not there. And the Bible speaks very strongly of humility. Uh, he's not exhaustive in any of his lists. He, he's helping us to understand. Paul realizes we need help. So he gives a bunch of examples. So Paul's lists never mean, and that's it. We only have to worry about these things. And we start out thinking, okay, I've never murdered anyone. Let's see. Did I bring anything home from work that I wasn't supposed to? I don't think I've said a lie too big recently. And we can, okay, this is about other people. Murderers, sexual immoral. Uh, we actually know from Jesus' teaching that that includes your attitudes and what's in your heart. It's not just adultery. It's lusting in your heart. It's not just murder. It's hating someone, being angry in your own heart. The, the, the Bible deals with heart, mind, actions. And so liars, perjurers, those who strike parents, those are all the same. It's, it's not just... Did you say a lie? Did, did you say things in such a way that you didn't lie, but you're pretty sure they're going to think this by what you said? Our kids can be good at that. Oh, you meant. We all know what we meant. Yeah, all of a sudden, they, don't, they may not do their homework, but they become lawyers real fast. Striking parents, it's not just for those who actually use their fist and hit them. It's, it's the attitudes of disrespect. It's all there. The one area that I just want to spend a little bit of time on, because in our culture it's become so controversial, and even somehow in the church it has become controversial, that of homosexuality. We have all sorts of statements even by those who say they're Christians and those who are, are pastors in churches. Um, well, things like, well, the Bible's not really clear about homosexuality. The Bible's not clear. What? So let me just go to, because that's a common one. The Bible you know, it has some general statements that some people for their own desires, make into being against homosexuality. This is what the Apostle Paul, the same person who writes this, this is what he says in Romans chapter 1, 26 and 27. Uh, speaking, he's again speaking of different sins. Uh, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women, exchange natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. Seems pretty clear. And what he says here in Timothy is pretty clear. In fact, you'd have to ask, how could Paul be any more clear? What clarity is needed beyond stating 
what it is and that it's sin. So the next time you hear read, well, you know, in the original language it's not clear, uh, just utter falsehood. Just because it is so clear and you don't want to believe it, you've got to come up with something. So you say, well, it's not really clear. Or uh, Paul, what he meant was homosexual relations, ships that were not monogamous. So he doesn't, he's against those. It's not just the homosexuality, it's where they're involved with multiple people. But from what we saw in Romans, it had nothing to do with the involved with multiple people. It says unnatural relationships with men rather than women. So again, it's, it's just the essence of that behavior. It's not whether or not you're faithless to your same-sex partner. Or that Jesus never said it. Which first confuses the nature of Jesus, because Jesus is the Word, the eternal Word. So all Scripture is inspired by God, which includes the second person of the Godhead. So Jesus' authority is over everything said in Scripture everywhere. His approval is on it. Uh, It misunderstands the nature of Scripture that all scripture is inspired by God. And so whichever author, wherever it is, it all has the same authority. It's all from God. And we have what Jesus said about marriage, where he quotes the Old Testament. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, a man shall leave father and mother, hold fast to his wife, two shall become one flesh. So Jesus specifically speaks of the biblical order of marriage and of gender that the Bible has always said. Uh, There can be gay Christians. And there can be Christians who struggle with any sin that exists. But to say you're a gay Christian, now we're speaking about identity. Well, you're a thieving Christian. Well, You can say you're a Christian and you stole something, or you, Christian, and yes, you lied. But we would never want to go around and say, I'm a thieving Christian. (laughs) I'm a lying Christian. I'm an adulterous Christian. Uh, We would never think to claim those forms of identity with anything else. People just want to love each other. And the Bible's keeping them from loving each other. The Bible has zero problem with a man loving a man or a woman loving a woman. It's introducing sexuality into the fact that we should love each person and be committed in loving ways. It's not a love issue. It is the misshaping of that and bringing sexuality into relationships where they're not meant to be. Or that we should show grace. Uh, No one can outgrace God. No one has more grace than God. And the law of God which we see in verse 8, is good. And that's why the law of God is given, to protect us and let us know what is good. So we're protected from what seems to be, but is not. The next sin is that of enslavers. And just to bring that up, uh, just for those who would say, well, the Bible never speaks about slavery in a way that condemns it. And how this, the church defended slavery when here Paul says enslaving someone, a man stealer, that is sinful. So going back to all that we know about the scripture, if being someone who steals and enslaves is a sin, I didn't steal the car, I just took possession of it afterward. If you're participating in it, That is sin. 
Paul says it clearly. And then, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's a significant statement. That's one we can kind of go past uh, and not think deeply about, but that's in some ways the most significant statement of all of them. How do we filter behavior that's good or bad, acceptable or not? It's not just, well, is it good for me in ways that we think are good or does it hurt other people or is the culture against it? Most importantly, we, we filter behavior. What is good and not good is how does it fit with the thrust of Scripture? How does it fit with the values of Scripture, the values of the gospel? Does it embrace what the Scripture is leading us to be and do, or does it compromise that? And there are all sorts of things we can think are neutral or optional, or things that we can make decisions about. We can't say, well, there's a, there's a scriptural verse that says, don't read that or go to that movie or do this activity or spend how much time in this hobby. Uh, the Bible never speaks of it, so it's up to me. Since when does the Bible ever say, and so that's up to you? I'll just trust your judgment. Isn't that our problem? How does it fit sound doctrine? Does it, does it go in harmony with all that we know about God and what he wants for us? What are the values we're to embrace? What's good for our loving God more? What is good for me loving my neighbor better? And that can guide us to how much time you spend on social media or football games or gaming or anything else we do. When and how do those things go beyond sound doctrine? When are they leading us away from being all that God calls us to be? Well, maybe that's when we have a problem. That's the statement that needs the true prayerful thinking. Okay, Lord, help me to consider. Are there emphasis, pursuits, things that I would have never said, oh, that is a sin. But if I'm honest, I recognize that's not helping me love God more. In fact, is that keeping me from what does it mean to love God more and love people more? Is it getting in the way? Now we start touching on a whole lot of things. Now we have some awkward thoughts and conversations with God. Now we're, we're actually having to say, Lord, Help me hold to convictions. Lead me. Because I want to be all that you want. Not just some of it. Not just the obvious. Not just the grotesque sins. How about all of it? Paul entwines theology and behavior in these verses, the whole letter, and all of Scripture. The Bible never separates good theology from good behavior, so we shouldn't. Our theology is a distorted theology if it's not substantially impacting our behavior. We're not understanding God as well as we think if our behavior is not shaped. We may have some statements we say we believe. What do we really think about God if we're not being shaped by it. And for those who try to change behavior without doing it through a clearer understanding of God are just using the flesh. And that never works. We see the very end of these verses 
when he says, whatever is contrary to good to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Behavior that is fitting to sound doctrine fulfills our purpose to be gospel people. It glorifies God. It will fill our soul with joy. Part of the correct understanding of God is believing and knowing the more we pursue him and follow him, the more joy it brings. If we can't believe that, what do we really think of God? Since good behavior and good theology is in alignment with the blessed God, it brings what is truly a blessed life, which is a fulfilled life, which is a God-glorifying life. And so, whatever you're struggling with at this point in your life, there's some behavior, there's some struggle, there's some way, something that just has nagged you. You've, you've struggled to be free of it, disappointment, or maybe something you've minimized, or maybe you're just believing the devil, well, I, I can't change that, or that's just my temperament. Whatever is out there, progress comes by exalting Christ and loving God more. That's the heart of it, that we love God more than sin. Without that, the other steps we're taking just aren't going to be that effective. Do we seek to love God more than sin? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your people who are here because they, they want to know you, because they're serious about your word. I ask that you would help them to go with that which is important for them, that you would bring the remembrance to them. Holy Spirit, help us to apply, to live out. We need you in this. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.